Hello, I'm Maddie. Hello, Namaskaram, and Manakam, I'm Shijo. And welcome to another episode of our podcast, Love, Love Premam Kado. In the last episode, we talked about co cultural theory. And in this episode, we're going to discuss the concepts of individualism and collectivism. And this is actually the first episode in a little series that we're going to do on cultural dimensions. Cultural dimensions are basically categories that can be used to describe differences between cultures. And I think they're something that can be helpful to pretty much anyone. But for Manny and I, we find these ideas really helpful to create common vocabularies to understand the differences between our own cultures and also to be aware of how they can affect our relationship. So let's explore more about it from what Manny has to say about her studies that she found for this episode. All right, Manny, what are we looking at today? So the individualism collectivism dimension was developed by a Dutch social psychologist. And I found out I've actually been pronouncing his name wrong because I've looked at his work before. Mm. So I'm going to pronounce it to the best of my ability. His name is Kert Hofstede. And so this dimension basically has to do with how interdependent members of a society are upon each other. And so people from more individualistic cultures are more used to thinking of themselves as I, while people from more collectivist cultures tend to think of themselves as part of a we. And so the way that Hofstede discovered this is that from the late 60s to the early 70s, he did a series of studies analyzing the values of employees at IBM. And he came up with six different cultural value dimensions to describe his results. And his studies have been replicated many, many times since then. And his framework has also been adapted and studied in a lot of different fields, including communication. But today we're just going to be focusing on the individualism and collectivism dimension. So anyway, he came up with an individualism collectivism scale, which he used to determine scores for different countries with a higher score indicating more individualism and a lower score indicating more collectivism. The scale is from 1 to 100. So we want to share the scores for the US and India, and we'll talk about our personal thoughts on it. India has a score of 48, which is towards the middle, but is usually still seen as leaning toward collectivism from most of the research that I've read. What are your thoughts on that, Shijo? Well, I think we need a re-evaluation there, don't we? Mr. Hawks today, we Indians are not happy with the F in this test. We need at least an A+. <laughs> you know it's not that kind of test. Yeah, you're right. But on a serious note, I may have some evidence which explains why we got this middling score. Some Indian communication scholars have suggested that the reason for this is maybe due to the influence of Hinduism in our Indian culture. Basically, they say that Indian culture has a strong collectivist tendency, but because of the Hindu concept of karma, there is also a strong individualistic influence too. All right, let's talk about karma and its definition. Karma is the belief that each person is responsible for their actions 
and the consequences or rewards for those particular actions will be carried over to your loved ones, your family, or even into your next rebirth. So they think that this philosophical idea has somewhat counterbalanced the collectivist tendencies as well as this individual tendencies. The researchers didn't talk about it, but I personally think that holidays play an important role in this one too. In US, you have three main holidays that you likely celebrate with your family, like 4th of July, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. But in India, there is at least one big holiday every single month that you would celebrate with your family, which I feel like it will give you more time with them. This might be a reason why people in India consider themselves as a member of a collectivistic group instead of being an individualistic. Mm -hmm. Also, on the same note, USA has code 91, which is obviously highly individualistic. So, Mary, what are your thoughts about it? Well, of all the countries in Hofstede's studies, we actually rank number one in individualism. <laughs> no bad. So, it's pretty extreme. And I think a lot of this comes from the importance we place on the idea of individual freedom. You know, we're always saying it's a free country. I can <laughs> do what I want. So I think that's a big part of it. And I think historically, as more and more progress was made toward equality and people from lower economic status were able to achieve higher economic status, <laughs> I think that made it matter less what family you came from and what yeah. your background was because it's sort of that idea of the american dream that you can come here and you can build yourself up you know it doesn't matter like where you came from or what your beginnings were so i think that's one of the reasons that people started to have more loose ties to their families and communities and i also think the rise of capitalism and its effects on all the religious institutions in the u.s had a big impact too as all of this literature on marketing and organizational growth started coming out of the business world a lot of religious institutions actually started following those same models and frameworks and so i think in a lot of places it started becoming less about community and more about creating this prepackaged individual experience and that's not to say i think that all religion in the us became superficial it's not at all the case but i think for a lot of faith communities they sort of had to choose whether to go with the consumer culture or to try and distinguish themselves from it so now that we've talked about the research and our thoughts on it, we want to discuss how it relates to our own experiences. All right, we have reached the discussion part for this episode. First off, we will be talking about how individualism and collectivism has influenced our expectation and relationship. So, Maddie, you want to start off? Yeah, so I feel like in the US, relationships tend to be looked at like it's just two people on an island. You know, it's hmm. really all about individual preferences and what you're looking for in a partner emotionally, physically, personality-wise. And, you know, if something about them just doesn't work out for you or you don't get along, for the most part, people can kind of just move on with no hard feelings. But once things get serious with someone, that's where I think it becomes like an island mm -hmm. because a lot of Americans tend to be more private with their relationships. And so some couples won't even meet their partner's family and friends until months after they've started dating. Mm. And so in that way, I feel like American couples are really only loosely connected to family and friends. Yeah, I get that. 
In India, though, until you turn 20, relationships aren't taken seriously. But as soon as you turn 21, it's like you aren't on an island, but with zombies. Zombies, really? <laughs> yeah, with zombies. And for your survival, you need to be paired with someone who has the means to protect you from becoming a zombie and also help you to continue the family line. There is this social pressure that everyone goes through because your family as well as your society, they all think that you're ready to undertake this endeavor because of all the training you've undergone from childhood. And this is what arranged marriage looks like. But I should say these days, love marriage is getting more popular and becoming more acceptable within the Indian communities. It looks like you have a choice, but your parents still have to approve that match for you. And if you want to get that approval from your parents, you need to meet certain expectations and those expectations are different for men and women. I feel like men have it easier than women because they're already seen as an asset to the family by being men. But women though, because of the expenses associated with the wedding and the expectations to be an asset for the in-laws, they're always under constant stress. But hey, things are actually changing for the good. I also think it doesn't just impact how close you as a couple are with friends and family, but how much you communicate with them about your relationship. Mm, yeah. I know I said earlier that generally Americans are more private with their relationships, but I think my experience was different just because of the way that my family operates. Growing up, I didn't have a big group of friends. I just had a small circle of close friends who I spent a lot of time with. And because of that, my parents tended to really invest in those friends because they were around so much. They always wanted to know what was going on in their lives, what problems they were facing, and you know what plans they had for the future, especially as we were growing into our teenage years. And they would have ongoing discussions with them about those things and give them advice, you know. And so when our friendship moved beyond friendship, I think it just made sense and it felt really natural for them to get invested in you and then in us as a couple. Mm. You know, it didn't seem strange at all to talk about the challenges we were facing in our relationship with them or the plans that we had for our future together. And so... I remember talking about marriage after like six months of dating and our parents were involved in those conversations, which is really crazy to some people, but for us, it just made sense. And personally, I feel like I would have felt weirder not talking to them about it, you know? Yeah, for me, I felt like it was normal because that's how we do it in my culture. And it was kind of a relief that I don't have to worry about learning how you guys do things and adjust to that. I should say it really helped both of us a lot discussing our future with our families. This way, we can talk about the possible issues that we might face as an intercultural couple and have us start focusing on places that might need some attention even before we dive into marriage. This made me realize that I could always trust on your family for some insight and I felt like we were not on our own in this journey. You know what, my mom always reminded me about the importance of both the families liking each other and how that could lead to a successful marriage. So I grew up with this understanding that marriage is for more than just two people, but for two families coming together. Yeah, and that's something I was taught too, that you know, it's not just about the couple, but the families coming together. 
And again, I don't feel like that's always the norm in America, but I'm glad that we both went into our marriage with that same understanding. Mm -hmm. And, you know, marrying someone whose family would welcome me and would accept me, that was always really important to me personally. And so I'm really glad that I got to have that in the form of your family's unique culture, you know. I've met people from families where they call their in-laws outlaws, but... (laughs) That was that was never a thing in my own family. I felt like we just never made a big distinction between in-laws and blood relatives. And I feel like there is this unspoken understanding that when you marry in, you're part of the family and you're going to be treated just like any other relative, you know? Yeah. My hope was that when I got married, I would view my in-laws as my second set of parents. I just love the fact that your parents were very close to me, even when we were dating. And when you were doing your study abroad in India, your dad took me to football games and your family visited me often to check on me. So after the wedding, there was this natural transition from calling them their first names to calling them daddy and mummy. (laughs) Okay, now let's talk about how individualism and collectivism influence our expectations of family. Yeah, I think we both have the expectation that we're going to help each other take care of each other's family, Mm -hmm. especially our parents as they get older. But there are some differences in what that looks like. I feel like with my parents, they just want us to support their goals. And I think as they age, they're going to want to maintain as much independence as they can. But I think for your family, their expectations are different. Yeah, whereas my mom, she had to take care of a lot of things on her own due to my dad's bipolar disorder. And when he passed, it took a toll on her. I'm trying my best to help her with her finances. But in future, I want us to be in a place where we have enough stability so that she could retire and take rest in our old age and we could just take care of her. Mm-hmm. I also think there's a bit of a difference in the way we talk about family, because in my experience, when Americans talk about their family, they're usually talking about just their immediate family, which is, you know, your parents and your siblings. And if they want to refer to other relatives, then they'll usually say like extended family. Yeah. But I don't think you necessarily make that distinction. Yeah. Like when I say family, I mean all my family from immediate to extended. And I personally like that because I think it's nice not to have to separate those two categories all the time. Mm. I mean, it does make sense sometimes to distinguish between them because for most people, their parents and their siblings kind of have the biggest influence on them and that's who they spend the most time with. Mm. But family doesn't have to be limited to the people who played the biggest role in your development, you know? Yeah, maybe that's where the collectivism with Indian family pops up, I guess. Speaking about families, in India, there is this custom that after the marriage, the bride actually moves in with the groom's family and they live together. Yeah, and part of the reason for that is because, you know, there's an expectation that you'll start a family pretty soon after Mm -hmm. marriage. And when you're expecting a child, it's nice for the daughter-in-law to have her mother-in-law there because she's experienced pregnancy and birth before. So she can provide her some support that her husband just can't. Especially after the baby is born too, it's really good to have that extra support because caring for newborns is really hard. (laughs) Yeah, It's also a way for the mother-in-law to share certain family tradition and pass them on to the next generation. 
This is something we really appreciate and are looking forward to when we start a family. Because we are an intercultural couple and we want all the support we can get to make sure our children don't lose their Indian identity and that they are able to communicate with my family since we speak Malayalam. Yeah, and it's really important to me that when we have kids, they grow up knowing that Indian culture. And there are some things I might be able to teach them, but there's a lot of things that I can't because I didn't have the experience of growing up in Indian culture. Mm -hmm. So it's really a relief to me knowing that we'll have all that help from your family. And I don't have to worry that all the things I can't teach them are just going to be lost. Yeah. How do you think that these differences affect the way we communicate? Well, I think one thing is you're from a face-saving culture, and most collectivist cultures are. So I think in general, you tend to think more about how others might interpret your words. Like, I remember when we were recording the last episode, I wanted to tell a certain story, and you stopped me and pointed out that even though it wasn't my intention, telling that story might reflect poorly on some of the people we know. And so maybe leave that out. And I'm glad you spoke up. And that's not to say that I'm just oblivious to how my words might affect others. I mean, I try to be considerate, you know, um, but it's just that I've grown up in a culture where people only hold me accountable for my own reputation, you know, not so much others' reputations as well. Since India is a close-knit community, our words travel faster than the speed of light. And growing up, I was always taught to think twice before I speak. And I was always reminded that you were just one word away from demolishing the image you created the whole life. And that doesn't just affect you, that affects your family too, causing this domino effect. Indian society is all about who you know and not about what you know. So offending the wrong people can be devastating to your family's livelihood. Yeah, so it's not necessarily like Americans are inconsiderate. Yeah. We just don't have to deal with such extreme consequences for losing face and you know consequences that extend to those around us. Another thing I notice is how you refer to people. Like you mentioned in a previous episode, how in India, you don't usually call a person by their first name. You call them auntie, chichi, yeah, uncle, yeah. whatever. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to mention it here because I think it relates to our discussion. And there's actually a word for it. Those types of titles are called honorifics. Hmm. And it seems to me like the use of honorifics might be one of the ways that collectivism manifests itself in Indian culture, because you're essentially referring to people based on your relationship to them, right? Yeah. There's a proper honorific to use for each person. Mm -hmm. And it's also cool because you'll use them even with strangers. Yeah, exactly. You know? And so it's like, even if you're not biologically family, you're all connected. Mm -hmm. And... I think it's a really beautiful gesture, and I like how referring to people in that way puts me into the mindset of considering how I'm connected to others. Yeah, for us, it's like how people here say please, thank you, and sorry. It's just the polite thing to do, and it's very strange and rude for us when other Indians don't say it. Yeah, because it's like they're saying, you know, I don't want to be associated with you, yeah, right? Yeah, it, it's definitely a rude thing to do with somebody there. Okay, I think that concludes our episode today. We hope you enjoyed our discussion and learned a thing or two. 
Also, if you want to know where your country scores on the individualism collectivism scale, we'll have a link in the description where you can find out. See you next episode. Bye. Bye.